Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. Uh, so you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And your host this morning is Carly, and Max will be joining me later in the studio. Uh, so this morning, we're going to play a conversation that I had with Carol Schwer about the history of boycotting. Um, it's a really lengthy and interesting conversation, so I can't wait to get into that. Um, and then we're also going to be speaking with Nadia. Um, and Nadia is uh, the editor of the Australian Multilingual Writing Project. Um, and Nadia is going to be performing um, some multilingual works at the Generations Festival this weekend. And then later on in the show, we're going to be speaking with O'Neill about the demonstrations in West Papua that have been happening since August this year. This Sunday, 27th of October, is being dubbed the Black Day, the day that India landed its troops into the capital of Kashmir, Shirinagar, in 1947. To protest this day and to protest the current human rights violations happening in Kashmir, local Melbourne Kashmiris are meeting this Sunday, the 27th of October, in Federation Square at 12pm and will be marching to the State Library of Victoria. There will be speeches from human rights activists, including Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance member and City of Moorland councillor, and local Kashmiris. Please come meet us at 12pm to protest against the lockdown, communication ban and human rights violation happening in Kashmir. For more information, please search Vigil for Kashmir on Facebook. Join us and stand with Kashmir. Matthew Fagan Band and Friends presents Earth Show, a rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Content starts at 8pm and an environment symposium, Our Shared Home, is on from 5pm. There's a 40% discount for 3CR subscribers, making your all-inclusive tickets just $33 for adults, $30 concession and $24 for students. Plus booking fee and don't forget to book in with the 3CR subscriber code 3CR20. Go to www.matthew-fagan.com. A 3CR supporter. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics. 
on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. It's the 24th of October and it's 7.04 AM in the morning. Um, and now we're joined on the line by Kate Kelly, who's going to give us the latest in the news. Welcome, Kate. Morning. So, first up, we have a senior Church of England bishop who has expressed regret at comments by the Archbishop of Sydney that supporters of marriage equality should leave the Anglican Church. Archbishop Glenn Davies said last week that those who supported same-sex marriage should abandon the church. Davies' statements came after the nod of the Diocese of Wangaretta in Victoria agreed to allow blessings of same-sex marriages in September. The challenge has been, a decision has been challenged in the church's tribunal. The report said Davies has received a standing ovation for his comments, but they've drawn a condemnation from Anglicans across the globe. And to Melbourne, where things are getting hotter, and I don't mean that in a good way. The city's maximum daily temperatures are expected to rise as much as 1.6 degrees by 2030, and could increase up to 2.7 degrees just two decades later if global emissions remain high. New CSIRO climate change projections show that Melbourne could feel more like northeastern Victoria, where sustained heat is common by 2050s under a worst-case scenario. Melbourne in recent years, which I'm sure we're all kind of aware, has endured just over eight days a year on average above 35 degrees. By 2050, that could rise to between 13 and 20 day, 21 days of extreme heat. The state government is bound to tackle this, and the Environment Minister citing an ambitious target of net zero emissions by 2050. And lastly... Thousands have continued to protest in Lebanon for their sixth day yesterday, despite, despite sweeping economic reform announced by the Prime Minister. So the government hoped that the plans they announced would get the protesters to go home, but it, it hasn't worked. Instead, they continue to demand that the Prime Minister resign. The demonstrations began as a vehement response to the government's new tax proposals, which included one on phone calls that take place over WhatsApp but the public pressure has grown into impassioned critique of the government itself. So these are the largest demonstrations in the country since 2005, and they have a real feeling of carnival. So there are people singing, there are quirky signs, there is even footage of a huge rage, rave taking place. They've been peaceful so far, but there are concerns that they could turn violent, especially in areas that has Hezbollah strongholds. And that is all the news you need to know on Thursday morning. Oh, thanks, Kate. No, thank you. Have a good show. <laughs> All the best today. <laughs> thank you. You too. Bye. 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 We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian-made, and you can get one for just $30. They come in black dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
choices. I look around and see plenty. Yeah. I just wanna feel numb, feel numb, feel numb. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a little thrown off the head. Bad choices. I look around and see plenty. Yeah. I just wanna feel numb, feel numb, feel numb. Yeah, yeah. Bad apple on the baddest. Looking for a little baddie. I can see them with the status. A little time and she can have it. Let them know I'm on the way. Bad boy like Biggie. Playtime, not my time. There's no time, let's get it. I be feeling, I'm so greedy. I just want it. Yeah, I don't need it. You want more? I can get it. Do no front on the kid. Now they can't fuck with me. There's no time and you want it. I can feel that you're falling. Now tell me who the baddest. Yeah, I just want a little baddie. In the game, I'm mad at Turned up in the baggage. I just want a little baddie. Yeah, fucking up with the baddest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a little thrown off the head. Bad choices. I look around and see plenty. Yeah. I just want to feel numb. Feel numb. Feel numb. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a little thrown off the head. Bad choices, I look around and see plenty. Yeah. I just wanna feel numb, feel numb, feel numb, yeah, yeah. I said I was the greatest, no time for the haters. I done handed no favors, narrow boy, but I made it. I ain't here for the games, you know the boys stay savage. I can never be tamed, I'm only here to do damage. No flex, don't test, I'm up, no rest. MIB with the business here, best of the best. Run them up, leave a mess. No fucks, no stress. Feeling numb, feeling blessed. Feeling numb, feeling blessed. There's no time and you want it. I can feel that you're falling. Now tell me who the baddest. Yeah, I just want a little baddie. In the game, like matters. Turned up in the baggage. I just want a little baddie. Yeah, fucking up with the baddest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a little thrown off the head. Bad choices, I look around and see plenty. Yeah, I just wanna feel numb. Feel numb, feel numb, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a little thrown off the head. Bad choices, I look around and see plenty. Yeah, I just wanna feel numb, feel numb, feel numb, yeah, yeah. And that track there was Numb by Nookie. Um, and next up, we're going to be playing a conversation that I had with Carol Schwer, who is a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, um, and her studies are in the theories of boycott. So enjoy. I'm here with Carol Chue, who's born in Singapore and is of Chinese heritage. She's a writer researcher and educator living on unceded Kulin Nation's lands. Carol, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so happy to be part of this. So, Carol, could you please tell listeners um, a little bit about the research that you're conducting at the Melbourne University? Yep. So I am a first-year anthropology PhD student and sort of feel like doing this interview is me getting ahead of myself, but um, I've been learning a lot uh, through reading, but then also talking to people, and I'm excited to share what I've come across so far. Great. 
So what kind of work are you conducting? So my research is about the use of boycott within um, Indigenous refugee migrant anti-colonial solidarities. And this is sort of like a trans-Tasman Sea study um, located in so-called Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I'm trying to think about boycott um, as more than just an anti-politics um, so usually it's presented as like refusal, disengagement or withdrawal. But instead, I want to think about it as practices and discourses towards um, indigenous futurities and world making. Wow, that's a lot to encapsulate in <laughs> one's research. Um, so, Carol, could you first start off by telling listeners a little bit about the history of boycotting? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm definitely still in the process of working on this because uh, this is part of my literature review. And But I can say that um, the word boycott actually emerged in 1880 through the Irish Land League, uh, which is an organization that argued that um, when a man takes a farm from another um, who has been evicted, you must shun him. Uh, so that was how the word came about, but of course, collective refusal precedes this. Um, but most of the readings that I've been doing uh, has focused on the 70s onwards, um, especially uh, with Aboriginal use of sports boycott. So, um, yeah, like while it's while boycott is today considered as one of the most effective accountability methods. It's not a new tactic for um, Indigenous struggles all over, the, all over the world and, yeah, continues to be used today. So uh, perhaps I can start by talking about how um, with the South African anti-apartheid movement in 1959, it began as a boycott movement, but then it turned into, um, it, it was renamed as the anti-apartheid movement in 1960, which meant that it had it has that basis in um, boycott as a strategy. And uh, how that relates to um, our current location, so so-called Australia, was that the Springbok team, um, which was like an all-white South African team. They were touring UK, um, Australia, and Aotearoa uh, around the 70s and 80s. And in 1971, there were Springbok tour demonstrations um, led by the Black Power movement here that actually preceded the setup of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972. Um, but what was super interesting for me to read about was 1981 when there were there were protests um, at the Springbok match there in Kirikiriroa, which is otherwise known as Hamilton, um, on Waikato Tainui lands in Aotearoa. And this was, um, I guess, a pretty crucial time because... 
it was well the campaign to boycott the Springbok match was led by Maori organizers and supported by some Aboriginal Black Power activists who had gone over to express their solidarity as well as settler allies. And um, as part of this global anti-apartheid movement at that time, um, this was apparently the only time that a, a sports boycott managed and, and the protests around that managed to cancel a game entirely. Um, and in Gary Foley's words, it was also the closest the country um, had come to having a civil war. So, yeah, that was like a pretty, I think, crucial time where um, you have these like solidarities converging around boycott. And that's actually one of the ways that I've been trying to think about it, which is that boycott is a foundation for people to direct their political passion towards. And it's, it's, it's like a basis for sustained solidarity commitment and it has multiple entry points into political engagement. So, um, yeah, the idea was that it's accessible for people in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely resonates with me. Um, I think even just on a daily basis, people can kind of attach that word boycott um, to some of the things that they already do. So if they don't like um, a certain company, they'll say, I'm boycotting that company. Um, I'm boycotting that organisation. Um, and it's really interesting to hear yeah, some of the um, ways that this has really escalated. Carol, how did you come to explore this work? Mm. Yep, so I came to thinking about boycott and wanting to study more about it as a strategy um, because of my initial involvement with the Artists Committee um, and their NGV and Wilson security divestment campaign back in 2017. And yeah, that was a time where I just learned a lot about what it meant to... Well, it wasn't that we were um, boycotting the NGV or anything, but we were asking um, the state art institution to divest from the refugee industrial complex. And, yeah, ever since, I guess, I've been working with RISE refugees, survivors, and ex-detainees, and they have a campaign called Sanction Australia that's been ongoing since 2017. Um, obviously, sanction is different to boycott, but within that movement that they're building are boycott campaigns as well. So boycott is situated within the broad umbrella of Sanction Australia. And Sanctioning Australia um, is to, uh, like, like I guess, um, well, the, the aim of that campaign is to sanction Australia from participating in international refugee humanitarian decision-making and human rights forums until um, various policies, including the end of mandatory de detention, end of refoulement, and the end of refugee boat turn-back policies. And yeah, this um, campaign, importantly, is initiated, controlled, and led by ex-detainees from RISE. You're listening to a conversation that I had with Carol Schwer. 
um, about the history of boycotting. Uh, you're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, and let's dive back into that interview. So, Carol, you've now mentioned boycott, divest and sanction, so it would be remiss of us not to talk about the BDS movement. Um, so, in 2002, there was the first formal BDS divestment campaign led by students, academics, um, and that was a cultural boycott in so-called Australia. And then in 2004, there was the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, and they made the official call for academic and cultural boycott. And then it was in 2005 that there was that um, official Palestinian call for this movement. Mm -hmm. So could you tell listeners a little bit about um, this? So yeah, like the Palestinian BDS movement is also a key site of my research. And ultimately, I want my research to be bringing people's stories together. So um, people who are part of... Uh, Palestinian BDS, but also um, RISE's Sanction Australia campaign and um, more contempt, well, 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 like current day sports boycott, um, such as in Stolen Wealth Games um, from last year. And yeah, um, for historical context, uh, maybe I'll start with. Um, 1917 with this document called the Balfour Declaration, which I learned about when I was studying in the UK. And um, it was a document where the British government basically announced that Palestine will be the national home for Jewish people. And I sort of understand this document as the first public expression of support for Zionism by a major political power. Um, And so... Yeah, like, with that establishment, um, with that declaration, it meant that the British are obviously complicit in um, the current situation of Israeli occupation um, in Palestine. And to skip ahead a little bit, the another date that is really important is Nakba Day, which is otherwise known as, um, I guess, exodus, you know, when Palestinians were expelled from their home forcefully. I think it was over 700,000 people. That's why we have so much, like, Palestinian diaspora all around the world. And um, in between then and now, there were wars, military operations, um, two big Palestinian intifadas and other uprisings in between um, and then you have so obviously I'm, I think I'm like skipping over a lot but BDS was established in 2005 as you said and it finds lineage through the South African anti-apartheid boycott movement um, but just generally the goals of BDS um, is to fight racialized injustice through demanding First, the end of Israeli occupation. Second, the recognition of rights of Arab Palestinian citizens. And third, the right of return for all Palestinians around the world. And it is a call made by Palestinians, um, by Palestinian civil society. Uh, Yeah, so BDS actions, I think, are often interpreted within an anti-racism framework, which is why I am really interested to 
bring it into conversation um, here because there is a, a BDS movement that exists here and it's growing and has, you know, like existed before today as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in so-called Australia as well, we act a lot in solidarity um, with Palestinian people. Um, and I think it's interesting that you're really trying to name some of the actions and campaigns that are happening here because we don't necessarily use the terms boycott, divest or sanction. But in your work, you are saying that um, you know, protests and campaigns such as the 2006 Commonwealth Games used those tactics. Um, so I was just wondering if you could um, yeah, speak a bit more about how the boycott, boycotting and divesting and sanctioning Australia has been used in Indigenous sovereignty movements. Yeah, so, um, I mean, boycott is a, a politics of refusal, um, and that's been ongoing, you know, since um, settler colonialism on this land. And uh, but but the explicit sort of and maybe popularized use of boycott. One example would be um, since 1982, when a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been protesting and boycotting the Stolen Wealth Games um, on the Gold Coast, otherwise uh, otherwise known as the Commonwealth Games, which is held every four years, I think. Um, so it happened again in 2006 when the Games were held in Naram Biranga, uh, Melbourne, and, up, and most recently in 2018 back in Mianjin. Um, yeah, so the boycott of these sporting events have their precedent in the 1971 Springbok Tour um, of the South African, white South African rugby team, which I mentioned previously. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, that was uh, the, the tour that the anti-apartheid movement opposed across the world and in so-called Australia too. But um, for me, it's interesting to think about um, sport as, you know, this field where a lot of First Nations have excelled and, like, gained fame and protested against discrimination. But at the same time, sport is known as this white Australian, like, interest through cricket and footy. Um, it's, it's nationalist, it's racist, and it's notorious, actually, for being part of this um, state-sanctioned cultural mechanism of white Australian, well, Australian settler colonialism um, and nationalism to establish itself as the sporting capital of the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with the so with the recent um, Stolen Wealth Games protest, I feel like boycott, um, the call for boycott, it certainly exists. And um, it is potentially used as like a media tactic. But at the same time, there's, you know, really um, transformative and generative events um, such as camp sovereignty, camp freedom that exist in alongside of, you know, this politics of refusal. And, yeah, I think that um, we can learn a lot from 
the way that I think calls to boycott um, are by First Nations here on this land, and it's not, you know, just a matter of um, looking towards the BDS, the international sort of Palestinian BDS movement. I mean, I think there can be learnings from both sides. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so next I might uh, actually ask you about the role of media. Maybe I can talk about media in through my experience of working on that NGV Wilson Security um, campaign because from that um, I understood that some of these institutions uh, that do have links to um, like d- detention and just like harmful regimes in general, uh, they care a lot about their progressive identity. And I think I refer directly to art institutions and universities. Um, There are definitely organizations that don't care and perhaps trying to shatter their reputation would would be a less effective goal. But in the case of my time with the NGV, um, divestment meant that we had to really focus on the visual, the visuality of our actions, Um, but also thinking about how we can get media on it because the media terrain these days is super hostile. Um, And so, yeah, I think visibility is one thing, but at the same time, there have been also campaigns that are much more low-key. And I'm talking about uh, this group called X-Border. So um, I met with Angela, Wenny, and Matt, who are part of it. And I learned a lot from them recently. Uh, they have a WordPress called X-Border Operational Matters. .wordpress.com um, and they worked on this HESTA superannuation fund divestment back in 2015. So HESTA was connected to Transfield, which is now known as Broad Spectrum, and they operate detention centers and prisons. And from there, I, I sort of like understood, I, I, I got a more nuanced understanding of how boycott and divestment tactics might work because this HESTA, I mean, as a superannuation fund, um, but also, you know, all these security companies, they don't really care as much about a so-called progressive image. And so um, in Angela's words, I remember them saying that you have to find leverage through that particular time, space and people you have access to and really focus on the resources that you have. Um, it doesn't actually have to be like a mass you know, mobilization, but as long as you have committed people who are, and who are also well positioned at that time, um, you target them, you speak their language, which is usually of finance, um, and you tell them the numbers that will actually impact them, um, if that makes sense. But yeah, 
reputational risk and sort of media tactics isn't material for all institutions. And um, I think that sort of targeting um, of boycott and divestment has to acknowledge like the like what those institutions and groups speak in and what actually hurts for them. You're listening to a conversation that I had with Carol Shue uh, about the history of boycotting. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Thanks so much for doing that thinking as well, Carol, because, yeah, I think that it's so important that we think about the fact that there's a diversity of tactics and there's um, just so many people that we do need to reach out to in our communities uh, and there's so many ways of achieving the goals that we want to achieve in social movements as well. Um, And so a lot of time, um, I think, now in um, the context of modern-day so-called Australia, people are are really attracted to going to those really big climate rallies. Um, But it's so important to remember that you can also achieve um, your goals through working together in small groups and talking to the people that have a lot of institutional power. Mm. Talking about institutional power, um, maybe can you talk a bit about the RISE campaign um, that is encouraging the University of Melbourne to divest? Yes, so um, RISE wants Melbourne Uni to divest from detention. Um, And I can't say too much about it right now because we're still in consultation with Rise on Next Steps. But it is public knowledge um, that MSS security fronts some of the university security on campus. And uh, this is a group that is known to have been subtracted by Serco. Um, They've recently had a 33 million Department of Defense contract and are still at onshore detention camps, one of which is is actually Broadmeadows, um, where the Afghani man passed recently um, in the news. Yeah, this was in the news recently. Uh, but the point is that, um, you know, so many Australian universities partake in not only the refugee detention industrial complex, but also military and arms, Fossil, fossil fuel extractivism and this to me speaks deeply like to, to the deeply embedded racism in this country on stolen land um, so a question that I constantly think about is how can one do this boycott divestment work and connect it to the other struggles that are ongoing and, you know, center First Nations and indigenous sovereignty because it's all connected ultimately. Um, I'm a child of the Chinese diaspora. And for me, you know, my feet, even though diaspora is sort of thought of as, um, you know, disconnected here and nowhere, my feet are still firmly planted on this land as my friend Harry from Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance in Warang would say and that's you know ultimately where I have to be accountable to and also but also at the same time where I can sort of find home in with the people around me I th- 
yeah, I can find home in the people around me. Um, yeah, so I think it would be um, important to just keep an eye out on how the divestment campaign goes with Melbourne Uni, and there's more um, in the works with uh, RISE's divestment campaign for Melbourne Uni, because it's not only just for universities in so-called Australia, but also hospitals. Um, yep, you can find out more information online on their website. Uh, one last thing that I want to say about boycott in general um, I don't want to glorify it as a tactic because, but but it is um, always important to have this right to refuse in like the struggle for like racial justice, um, racial and decolonial justice, and you know this is why. Well, just recently Ilhan Omar um, introduced the right to BDS bill. Um, it is why in Aotearoa there's um, a movement to boycott the 20 million Captain Cook landing commemorations, which, you know, draws parallels to uh, Guigo 2020, uh, but also the way that every year here um, people refuse to celebrate Invasion Day. And so, yeah, it's... Also, at the same time, not just about refusal, because our identities um, as racialized peoples are always more than just, you know, anti-institution, anti-state. There is work going on to build something more, you know, a world that's like better for everyone. Thank you so much, Carol, for joining us here at 3CR. Thanks for having me. <laughs> From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC a 3CR supporter. Guitarist Matthew Fagan, band and friends, presents Earth Show, a rock and classical journey across our living planet. It's a music and visual spectacular, celebrating the one planet that we inhabit. Saturday the 9th of November at the Deacon Edge Federation Square. Content starts at 8pm and an environment symposium, Our Shared Home, is on from 5pm. There's a 40% discount for 3CR subscribers, making your all-inclusive tickets just $33 for adults, $30 concession and $24 for students. Plus booking fee and don't forget to book in with the 3CR subscriber code 3CR20. Go to www.matthew-fagan.com. A 3CR supporter. 
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's now 7.40 AM. It's the 24th of October. Um, and I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation that I had with Carol Schwer. Uh, and now we're going to launch into a track. Uh, it's called S&D and it's by Reza Biza and it's featuring B-Wise. <laughs> Yeah. 
I can. I was just saying I couldn't roll this joint. But. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3pm. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And next up, we're going to bring you the first in a three-part series from 3CR's Latin American Update. Sarah Gillies uh, introduces one of the freest, now the poorest. This series will be focusing on the island nation of Haiti, which is incredibly pertinent given the current social, economic and political crisis racking the country. In fact, there have just been fresh calls for the nation's leader to resign, and massive protests are continuing in force. Now, Haiti is a deeply significant country in the context of Latin America. It was, in fact, the first free black republic and the first free Latin American nation in the world. And for that, the West has punished Haiti and driven it to absolute misery. But we will learn more about that in the coming weeks. Our first instalment today will look at Haiti prior to the arrival of the Europeans and up to the Haitian Revolution. Then we will analyse the revolution itself and the newly declared Republic of Haiti in week two and finish with the 20th and 21st centuries in week three. Haiti, a small and mountainous nation, shares the island of Hispaniola just to the west of Cuba with the Dominican Republic. Of course, these artificial boundaries did not exist prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Rather, the entire island was populated by the Taino people who had migrated from the Amazon and Orinoco regions of South America and arrived in roughly 600 AD. They came to call the island Aiti, meaning land of high mountains, or Kiskeya, depending on regional variations in language. The Taino were organised into casicazgos, or chiefdoms, of which there were five around the island. Each was ruled by a cacique who received tribute from his people and others defeated in conflict, though by and large they were a peaceful culture. Most major studies have indicated that Taino society was prosperous yet deeply paternalistic and hierarchical, with polygamy being actively practised by the men of the culture. Their enmity with the neighbouring Carib people was notorious, and it has even been speculated that Carib raids on Taino populations in South America prompted their retreat to the Caribbean in the first place. 
though this is still a hotly contested theory among historians. In 1492, the arrival of Christopher Columbus was remarkably underwhelming, at least on the Haitian side of the island. A small community of 39 Spaniards established the settlement of La Navidad on what is today Cap Hatien. When Columbus returned to the island the next year in 1493, he found that all 39 settlers had perished and La Navidad had been abandoned. Greater efforts were diverted to the west of the island and a colonial capital was established at Santo Domingo. Yaguana in Haiti South was the next more successful attempt by the Spaniards to establish a foothold in Haiti in 1502. It is interesting to note that the Spanish held all of Hispaniola, including Haiti, until the early 17th century, and also presided over the extinction of the island's indigenous inhabitants in one of the worst of the Latin American colonial genocides. In the first few years of conquest, 90% of Hispaniola's indigenous population perished through a combination of the encomienda slave system and the usual culprit, disease. Interest in Hispaniola over the next few decades diminished significantly with the discovery of gold, silver and other minerals in Latin America. And while Santo Domingo in the West was always well defended due to its strategic position, the Haitian side was neglected by the Spanish. Yaguana, chief settlement of the Spanish on the Haitian side of the island, was destroyed no less than three times by English, French and Dutch pirates. Piracy was endemic in the waters of Hispaniola at the time, and these brigands exercised a great degree of authority in local affairs given the absence of strong Spanish rule. For several decades, the island of Tortuga, now within Haiti's territory, was ruled by a pirate council that operated independently until the French consolidated their rule. The Dutch, in particular, however, were loathed by the Spaniards, who were dealing with their rebellion back in Europe. Even more humiliating, Spanish colonists on the Haitian coast were actively and illegally trading with Dutch vessels. In other words, trading with the enemy. This led to a disastrous move on the part of the Spanish. In 1605, the Crown forcibly relocated Spaniards living on the Haitian side closer to Santo Domingo in a bid to stop these illegal exchanges. These events, known as Las Devastaciones, or the Devastations, led to mass starvation as infrastructure in the West could not accommodate the massive influx of individuals. Others fought against Crown soldiers, and yet more fled on passing vessels or into the dense, forested interior. Eventually, in 1697, Spain formally seceded control of Haiti, now depopulated and defenceless, to the French, who had been keen to conquer this territory for decades, though in reality they had exercised significant control over the local economy since 1625. With this move, Hispaniola was divided and the French colony of Saint-Domingue was born. And where the Spanish had failed to exploit Haiti's economic potential, the French turned the island into a stunning success for the colonial elite. The French quickly set about establishing a number of settlements in Haiti, including the current capital, Port-au-Prince, in 1749. However, the beginning of French colonial rule on this island was by no means smooth. Two devastating earthquakes and subsequent tsunamis, one in 1751 and another in 1770, left hundreds dead immediately and up to 30,000 more perished from starvation and disease in and around Port-au-Prince alone. However, by the 1760s, not even these setbacks could halt the rapid economic growth the island was experiencing. Almost the entirety of Saint-Domingue's success came down to one cash crop, sugar. It allowed Saint-Domingue to become arguably the wealthiest colony in the world at the time. 
The island produced 40% of all sugar consumed in Europe and the vast majority of sugar in the world for that matter. French citizens of all social classes flocked to the colony, eager to strike big and get rich quickly. Of course, it wasn't the vast majority of Frenchmen who were engaging in the brutal, back-breaking labour of sugar harvesting. By the 1780s, Haiti accounted for one-third of the total transatlantic slave trade. Slavers scoured the coast of Africa, including Congo, Guinea and Dahomey, kidnapping thousands and sending them to work as slaves in the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. And at this time, the vast majority were being sent to Saint-Domingue. In fact, an estimated 800,000 slaves inhabited Saint-Domingue by the late 1780s, ruled over by a European population of just 32,000. This would have ramifications for the colony later on. The French treated their slaves with particular violence and malice, killing, raping and torturing those that were defiant or deemed to be slacking off. Henry Christophe, who lived as a slave on Saint-Domingue for half of his life before becoming a freed person of colour, describes some of the methods of punishment used by the French colonists. They included crucifixion on wooden planks, waterboarding, lashing slaves' backs and leaving them on anthills, being burnt alive in boiling cane syrup, and leaving slaves at the mercy of hunting hounds, to name just a few examples. These cruelties were given legality by a 1685 decree from King Louis. Such horrific atrocities led to countless slaves fleeing from the plantations and establishing communities deep in the Haitian interior. Known as Maroons, these people did their best to remain hidden from the French colonial militias. One such Maroon, Macandal, gathered quite a large following and led numerous raids against French settler towns. Eventually, in 1758, he was captured and burnt alive publicly in Cap Francais. Interestingly, Saint-Domingue had the largest number of free coloured people in the Caribbean. They largely came about as the offspring of a French slave owner and his African concubine, and were afforded a certain degree of rights compared with full-blooded slaves. Nonetheless, by the 1780s, the French regime had implemented discriminatory policy against them as well, targeting the growing number of these free people who owned coffee farms and plantations. They had even made significant inroads into the slavery business as well. It must be noted that this group of generally wealthier, educated coloured people comprised a significant portion of the revolutionary leadership that would challenge French colonial rule later in the century. By the late 1780s, internal contradictions in the French colony were reaching their zenith. Conditions had rapidly deteriorated for the black slave population, which paradoxically vastly outnumbered the white colonists and yet were being subjugated and exploited by them. The inequalities between these two groups were now glaringly obvious and the free people of colour were very quickly growing disillusioned and angered by the brutality and discriminatory policy of the French elite. Then in 1789, events in Europe proved to alter Saint-Domingue's, soon to be Haiti's, history irrevocably. In particular, the French Revolution had begun, with the National Assembly in Paris putting into effect the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, granting at least nominally human rights and universal suffrage to French men. There was, however, much confusion amongst the mulatto class in Haiti about this decree, as it did not apply to them nor the slaves, despite the fact that they too belonged to France. The diffusion of French revolutionary ideals throughout the colony, coupled with a noticeable economic downturn given the turmoil in France itself, led to increasing calls for the fundamental rights of African Haitians to be respected. Vincent Auger was one such mulatto calling for change. He petitioned lawmakers in Paris to apply the same rights to French colonial subjects. 
This plea fell on deaf ears and in 1790, Auger led an uprising on the island. It was suppressed and he and his supporters fled to the Spanish-controlled West, where, betrayed by the Spaniards, they were captured and returned to the French colonial regime. Vincent Auger was subsequently tortured and executed. By 1791, the French government had agreed to grant citizenship rights to the wealthier people of colour in Haiti, yet the slave owners on the island continued to treat them as second-class citizens, ignoring Paris. This sparked isolated incidents of fighting across the territory, which eventually grew into full-scale bloodshed as the French found themselves faced with an increasingly powerful and well-coordinated resistance movement. Foreign powers also had a part to play in this conflict, but we will save the Haitian Revolution itself the next time. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Um, and that there was Sasha gillies Lacaeus there with part one of Once the Freest, Now the Poorest, a special three-part series focusing on the island nation of Haiti. Um, the series is produced by the Latin American Update Program here at 3CR, and you can tune in on Sunday mornings at 10.30 AM or listen back at 3cr.org.au. Latin America <laughs> Update. Um, and now I think we're going to head to a track. This one was just released yesterday, so um, hot off the press. <laughs> um, this one's by Squidginini, Trigger Me.
And that track there was by Squidgenini, uh, Trigger Me. Hope you really enjoyed that one. I'm really excited for Squidgenini to be bringing out new music. Um, and she's also going to be coming into the studio in a couple of weeks' time um, because she is playing at a show here um, at One Year. So we'll give you more details then. And now on the line, we're joined by Nadia Nadez. Nadia is the editor of the Australian Multilingual Writing Project, a free online journal that publishes local multilingual creative writing. Their aim is to challenge the idea of a multilingual Australia by giving voice to the many languages that live here. At Generations this weekend, the Australian Multilingual Writing Project are presenting a live performance of multilingual works that address the transmission of language through generations, the relationships with family and heritage that are embedded in language use and language loss, and the way that heritage languages interact with contemporary migrant identities. So welcome, Nadia. Hi, it's lovely to be here. (laughs) So um, could you just tell listeners a bit about the Australian Multilingual Writing Project? Uh, sure. So it's um, a, an online, a free online uh, publication that I started last year. Uh, it's published twice a year, and our aim is to publish um, writing that is multilingual. And by that, I specifically mean writing that mixes languages in a meaningful way, such that if you were to take out one of the languages, the, the work wouldn't really work quite as well. Mm. So the, both languages have to be integral to it and work together to form. Uh, finished piece um, and we also always publish audio with that because um, oftentimes if you see another language in text it's a little hard if you don't speak that language to get into it but I have always felt that hearing the human voice speaking has a power um, that text doesn't and it can help people get into it in, in a much better way so we're currently working on our third issue which will be out hopefully in December um, and we're really looking forward to um, having our showcase. It's our first live outing uh, at the Generation Festival. Yeah, incredible. Um, and you have published a couple of um, uh, issues already. Um, yes. And, yeah, what has um, been, um, I guess, the focus in those two issues? Um, generally, I've left it open because I find that people will find their own uh, uh What's the word? The, the the theme kind of emerges somehow. Like people seem to be thinking on a particular subject, and then um, and currently it's been about that the, the idea of transmission, the idea of learning, the idea of reconnecting with something that was yours but was denied you in some way, or then the idea of exploration of these you know new flirtations with language and learning a new language and you know, falling over your feet a little bit and mm-hmm. then eventually um, getting there. And so it's all about the relationships we have. And there's, there is a lot about, you know, loss and stuff, but there's also just delight in language. And that's, I think, one of the best things about writing and poetry particularly, that you can, you can just revel in the wonderfulness of the sound and the richness of language. Um, so that's basically been my focus. Yeah. If you can call that a focus. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, and what can people expect if they're going along to the Australian Multilingual um, Writing Ooh. Project performance this weekend? I, I'm really excited about this because everyone that I've invited is an absolutely staggeringly amazing poet um, or writer, and they have all been extremely generous in entrusting me with their work um, to publish it, uh, to, to either be um, published by me or to uh, contribute as editors. 
um, for the um, MWP, um, and uh, we've we, we've got Maria Takalanda coming along. Uh, we've got Vanessa Hiron. Um, we've got a whole bunch of other fantastic writers, and um, we'll, we'll they'll each be speaking for about. Four to six minutes, they'll be reading some poetry or prose, depending on their particular genre. Um, and all of the poems will be mixed, or, or, or all of the texts will, will have a mix of languages in them. Um, I've also invited them to maybe speak for a few minutes about you know, their individual relationships with the language, which I think will resonate very much with the crowd. Um, yeah, um, and it, it, it should be great. I'm so excited about it, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, yeah, you have spoken about the use mm-hmm. of language, but also of language loss, which I think yeah. is um, really yeah, interesting. Um, could mm-hmm. you speak a bit more um, to, yeah, that um, idea of losing language and the importance of, um, yeah, making sure that we're, like, reviving languages? Yeah, I think I think that that's extremely important, and and it's it's also I mean, much as I love the idea of delighting in language and all of that, one of the main things to acknowledge is that Australia has never been monolingual, mm. um, and English is an imposition, and that there are hundreds of languages, indigenous languages, that exist here, that existed before the colonizers came, and also that continue to exist um, and persist, um, and that um, but that 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 loss of language, the idea of sort of assimilation and all of that, that 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 can be quite traumatic for a lot of people. Mm. Um and also that these days I think that people sort of those who have the uh, the opportunity to do so have started to look back to their roots and to realise what was taken from them. Um and I'm talking about not I'm talking about indigenous people here as well as um migrants who've had to sort of whose parents sort of moved here and just had to get along and just had to you know, do do what was best for their kids and remove the home language and just just to make sure their kids had a fighting chance. Um, and those people are sort of looking back and going, but hang on, that's like half that's half my heritage. I can't speak to my grandparents anymore. Um, how do I, I? I don't know where I'm from. I don't know who I am and things like that. And that can be um, that can be quite um, well loaded and um, difficult. But it's really important to create a space where you can have these difficult conversations and where you can actually talk about the idea of a hybrid identity and the idea of we were from here, we are from here, this is this is the sort of this this sort of third space that we occupy now. Um and then by all means to sort of indulge in the joy in the river and the and, and, and the and the renewal of identity. But we have to acknowledge that it comes often from a place of deep loss. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Um, and with this project, um, mm. where do you see it heading in the future? So um, most of the work that you're publishing at the moment is poetry. Can we expect some longer form um, writing? Yes. In fact, um, in, in the third issue that I'm working on at the moment, we've, we've expanded to prose. Um, we have, there's, there's a lot of poetry as well, um, but we've also got a few prose pieces. And in the future, I'd like to expand even further, um, not just into prose, but also into artwork and um, you know, visual art and, and, and stuff as well, because I think that that's also an interesting representation of identity and of relationship with language, and that visual art is not divorced from text. Um, 
and that I, I and I've sort of spoken with a few artists who seem to be quite interested in in, in that in the idea. So hopefully I'll be able to uh, make that happen in the new year. Um, and I mean, otherwise, maybe eventually we can open up to like international collaborations. The AMWP is the um, it's only the second journal in the world that does this work. There's one um, out of Canada um, whose editors are also lovely, and they sort of um, they've been really supportive and have been cheering us on. So we're just like two two little voices <laughs> <laughs> on this giant globe, but um, we're we're getting somewhere, I think. Mm. And you're performing um, at the Generations Festival, which is this Saturday, 26th of October, and the festival is from 11am to Um, Mm 5pm, and it's being held in the Immigration Museum. Um, So how have you kind of curated um, this uh, performance so that it can fit within the context of the Generations Festival and also being um, hosted and held at the Immigration Museum? I thought, first of all, that the Immigration Museum was a fantastic venue for it because we are talking about, you know, a multi-generational, multi-art form, multi-perspective sort of program and it incorporates all these different elements and types of art um, and performance. Um, and the aim, again, with Multicultural Arts Victoria, the aim generally is, is this, a, a celebration of diversity and the creating a space to give voice to all the different voices in um in in our community um and i think that I mean, when i heard about it i left immediately at the chance to sort of put forward a proposal and say hey hi we're here um we'd love to be involved in this because this is pretty much tailor-made for us <laughs> um and um and again like because we're talking about language we're all we're already immediately talking about culture and heritage and how we learn our languages and who who Keeps, I suppose, who, who 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 keeps the memories of our family mm. and stuff. There's always that one person in the family who just is is the font of all the stories and <laughs> all of that. And so connecting with them and how how we came to learn our languages, how we came to lose them, even like we have we have some people addressing that as well. The idea of um, who who we lost touch with, and so it is very much language. You know, is deeply deeply embedded in family. Um, the way we respond to language is deeply embedded in our relationships with our families, um, whether they be our, you know, families of origin or our chosen families. So I sort of felt, felt like it was an amazing fit. And we're going to be in the Discovery Center, um, downstairs and, um, we're running from 12.30 to 1.30, right before Melbourne Spoken Word. And, um, yeah, it's a lovely room. It's quite, it's quite intimate. Um, and it's, it's, it's got this sort of library kind of feel to it with like big comfy chairs and there's even like space on the ground and, you know, comfy cushions and whatnot. Um, and so we're going to be down one end of it and, um, yeah, we'll be presenting from, from there. And it's just this sort of lovely, warm, inclusive space, which I thought I, when I, the, the minute I thought it was when, yep, this is perfect. So I'm just really, really happy with, with the way it's all come together. Uh. That's really exciting. Um, and I think that, yeah, we're just talking about language in so many different ways now. I know that mm-hmm. um, in America the term code switching um, is being talked mm-hmm. about a lot and I think that people yeah. are yeah, starting to talk about it um, a bit here as well. So even within, um, I guess, that um, like monolingual language that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are saying, oh, no, we are also speaking different languages yes. as well. Exactly, exactly. 
so in my in my in my other other life I'm also an academic and I teach about multilingual writing and one of the things I always say is that multilingualism is no different from monolingualism. It just means that you have, you know, instead of two synonyms for chair, you've got four. Um, but we always, if you, if, if, if my grandmother were to call me right now, I would speak to her in a completely different way. And if I were to talk to a five-year-old, I'd speak to them in a different way. We switch registers all the time anyway. Monolinguals just, humans are built to do that. And monolingual people, multilingual people just do that across more languages. But the function, the mechanism is exactly the same. And I, I don't believe that anyone is monolingual, to be fair. I think we've all, there's no such thing as a pure language or a single sort of, um, I suppose, unless you're talking about computer language, maybe. <laughs> but um, otherwise, it's all mixed. And we're, we're always using these borrowed words and stuff. So there's, this, there's this richness there that we just, if we just know how to look for it, it's right there. Mm. Um, yeah. And so for listeners, um, head along to the Generations Festival this Saturday, the 26th of October. It's starting at 11am at the Immigration Museum. And Mm -hmm. Nadia, how can listeners um, learn more about the Australian Multilingual Writing Project? Uh, Well, we've got a website um, where we publish our um, work and also send out calls for submissions. Um, That's australianmultilingualwriting.org little bit of a mouthful, I'm afraid. Um, and we're also on Twitter as uh, Multilingual Oz, O-Z. Um, and uh, we have a Facebook page as well, which is also the Australian Multilingual Writing Project. Um, again, I'm, I, I feel I always feel like I need to apologize for the length of the name. <laughs> it's one of those things where I went, yes, I'm going to do this. And then it was done. And then I went, uh-oh. <laughs> it's a bit long. But at least it is it is what it says on the box, you know. Australians who write multilingually. That's what we do. Well, thank you so much, Nadia, for joining us here at 3CR. Not a problem. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was Nadia Nadez there um, talking about the Australian Multilingual Writing Project, which is happening at the Generations... um, Well, there's a performance happening at the Generations Festival this Saturday. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week including a diverse range of community language shows. Come smarter than a Tricia Community Radio, please subscribe now. Testame una ila ila Tricia Community Radio araja al istrak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali Tricia rai kertu kondir kondir kal. Rinri nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsuk ketsek radio i gairanin. For a time, good am Elbumi Hai Karotin. Hima Artana Krevetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. We know you.
you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. This Sunday, 27th of October, is being dubbed the Black Day, the day that India landed its troops into the capital of Kashmir, Shirinagar, in 1947. To protest this day and to protest the current human rights violations happening in Kashmir, local Melbourne Kashmiris are meeting this Sunday, the 27th of October, in Federation Square at 12pm and will be marching to the State Library of Victoria. There will be speeches from human rights activists, including Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance member in City of Moorland Councillor and local Kashmiris. Please come meet us at 12pm to protest against the lockdown, communication ban and human rights violation happening in Kashmir. For more information, please search Vigil for Kashmir on Facebook. Join us and stand with Kashmir. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And now in the studio, we're joined by Poro, who is an uh, West Papuan activist. Um, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks now for having me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, can you first start by telling listeners a bit about the demonstrations that are happening in West Papua? Um, uh, it started in August. Yeah, yeah, it started in August. Um, so... I'll take you back in time. So, uh, what's happening is, um, the demonstration started in Malang by, um, AMP, West Papuan Students Alliance, in, uh, one of the region in Jaffa, Indonesia. So, our students demanding, you know, um, justice for the civil, uh, villages in, uh, Duga and Alguru village in West Papua Highlands region. Because, you know, um, there was some military operations up in the highlands and a lot of casualties and a lot of villages need to flood and from, from the village to the closest, um, villages in the highlands like Jaya and Punjak Jaya and other highlands region in West Papua. And yeah, because of, we demand justice and send emergency relief to the casualties and, uh, suddenly, the military, Indonesian military and the nationalist militia is like surrounding them and um, arrest them for no reasons. And followed by our another comrades, uh, AMP, uh, West Papua Students Alliance in Surabaya, where after that, um, the accommodations being right by some of Indonesian military and uh, Indonesian militia too. And yeah, uh, they 
the Surabaya students, our West Papuan uh, students in Surabaya, actually demand, uh, did a peaceful protest due to um, our comrades that have been arrested in Malang, and also there are, there are a series of deaths of our um, Catholic priests in West Papua, four of them, and uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, it's, it's it's a mystery because uh, we don't know who murdered them, and mm-hmm. yeah, and plus the bombing victims, and plus uh, some of our uh, KNPB West Papua National Committee activists arrested too, and yeah, um, yeah, after after they get raped in the accommodations, uh, they actually took a video out of it where you know people throwing stones and bamboo and all that to and then call them monkeys and dogs and go back to West Papua you don't belong here and yeah since August and then to September there was a big riot and yeah people uh, West Papuan people in West Papua from all over the region from Sorong to Morocco down in near um, Arnhem Land uh, southern part of uh, West Papua. Mm. We all walk on the street. So pretty much um, from different layers of community, all the moms, all the uh, preachers on all different religious community, and the workers, the kids, and uh, walk on the street. And um, we're raising our morning star flags because, uh, like, we've been living under this. Um, you know, uh, military regime and oppressions by Indonesian government for too long. Mm. Like six, uh, 1963, uh, first act of free choice, you know, um, and it's not really a referendum, but it was, uh, Indonesia called it Mushawara. It's, you know, how, you know, uh, all the mob get together. Mm. But at that time, and it's actually engineered by Australia and America, so. Yeah. Yeah, after the New York uh, agreement without involving uh, West Papuan people. And, yeah, so uh, during the uprising, you can feel the energy, you can feel the rage. And um, we raise our morning star flags in pretty much all Indonesian government buildings all over West Papua. Yeah. And in compared to um, Aceh. Liberation movement and East Timor liberation movement. Um, you know that um, this is the biggest because uh, we raise our morning star flags in uh, Jakarta, um, capital city of Indonesia, and also yeah. Um, uh, yesterday, yesterday, I mean, followed by so so after after the raid. After the raid, after the uprising, there are more like more than 180 deaths already. Uh, we swap on activists and villages as well. And also there's, uh, there, there are seven political prisoners after that, uh, from West Papua now has been relocated to, uh, East Kalimantan, you know, away from the family, away from West Papua. Mm-hmm. And this prison is called Kalisosok, where it's very famous. Um, along with Papuan community because of uh, our elders activists has been assassinated there and we know what's going to happen to them as well and um, yeah uh, luckily there's support from uh, Indonesian community and students as well so like we're not we not hate them we don't hate them we need to emphasize uh, clearly that we don't hate Indonesian people but we hate 
the Indonesian government and those uh, uh, political elites that you know control pretty much everything, mining and energy resources, and using military as the political repression tools to uh, you know uh, low class society, the farmers and you know, environmental and human rights activists in Indonesia and West Papua too. So, yeah, um, they stand together with us. And uh, not long ago, two weeks, three weeks, there were uh, massive students' protests as well in Indonesia. And, yeah, five, five of them made it by their military, Indonesian students. And one of the demand at that time, there are seven demand, right? And... Uh, yeah, one of the minus is uh, to pull back uh, military from West Papua and release all political prisoners. And one one of the political prisoners is Indonesian. Uh, so there's this uh, Free West Papua Indonesian Citizen Front supporting Free West Papua. So one of the activists called uh, Surya Anta. He's a uh, first Indonesian that has been arrested due to, you know, uh, supporting West Papua self-determinations. So, yeah, there's huge energy supporting um, West Papua Liberation Movement back home. And just yesterday, 23rd October, um, there was a national peaceful protest as well by uh, a Free West Papua Indonesian Citizen Front for Free West Papua. And... The students as well, uh, they demand uh, release all West Papuan political prisoners. Mm. Yeah, and yesterday we had this uh, BP action too here in Melbourne. So um, I think uh, the the people will not you know back off. Yeah, that's what I can see from the movement. Yeah. and at the moment it's very hard to know what's going on in West uh, in West Papua, especially the news, Indonesian news, and uh, only cover up the new you know, presidential elections. Yes, and yeah, as we know, uh, the appointed Minister of Defense is Prabowo uh, Subianto. You know the human right, uh, the war crimes, because he's responsible for. You know, um, students kidnapped and killings during the 60s in Indonesia and also, you know, Wamena massacre in West Papua and all other massacres and military operations in Indonesia. Plus, uh, his brother appointed as a minister of uh, Mar- maritime affairs and fisheries and all others, you know, this uh, oligarchs, mafia, pretty much you know, appointed to be uh, Indonesian ministers. Mm. And they know that um, the people are rising. Yeah. I mean, the students, Indonesian students, Indonesian, you know, farmer and all the workers, unions, are tired already. Yeah. With, you know, how government treated us. And this is the second term of Jokowi, so they're going to, you know, oppress more. All of us, all uh, you know, human rights or environmental activism in Indonesia, so we need to fight harder, I think, for yeah. the next five years. No, I think it's really important um, how you talk about all of those overlapping interests, so mm. military interests, um, and then, yeah, like, anti, like, environmental interests of the um, Indonesian government, um, and how we all have to, yeah... Um, act in solidarity. And there was a solidarity mm. rally um, a couple of weeks ago as well. Can you quickly speak about that? 
Um, yes, uh, Solidarity Rally last time. Um, <laughs> it, 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 uh, during, during the, during the rally, it was, uh, it, it, it's hard to get to media because uh, it was clashed with, the uh, refugee rally in the morning and also XR rally in the morning. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, what happens is we, we're supporting, uh, West Papua Uprising at that time. And yeah, because uh, after after the the video of students attacked by the military and militia, um, you know they sent more than six thousand troops, and like I bet with the navy ships and all the soldiers that have been sent now is like ten thousand in total in West Papua, and they're still there. And also they shut down, blocked down the internet. And yeah, pretty much, and and they they shut uh, all the all the border checkpoints to Papua New Guinea, so West Papua can't fled to Papua New Guinea too. Mm. While you know, um, Papua, Minis- uh, Papua New Guinea Mis- minister already declared that oh, you welcome, we welcome all West Papua refugee. And yeah, so we 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 did a solidarity rally, and our, our demand is to. Uh, Immediately, you know, pushing Australian government as well to, you know, because as a member of the UN, yeah. definitely you have, you know, these moral obligations. And we want a f- human rights commission of visit to West Papua to see what's happening in West Papua. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR this no morning. Worries. And we'll have to talk to you um, another time. Yep. Um, so, yeah, free West Papua. Free West Papua. And um, that's all for this morning. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.